Well, friends, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read to you again this familiar passage, the Lord's Prayer. And as uh, many of you all know that we've been working our way through this prayer, thought for thought, line by line, with the understanding and the assumption, the belief that when Christ taught his disciples to pray in this way, he was obviously wanting to set out a model or in a sense, a model of simplicity in prayer. But also beneath every thought, every line, there is is an entire theological world that can be unpacked um, that really informs the way he speaks and the way he teaches. And so that's been our understanding as we've unpacked this prayer. The aim, of course, is to help each one of us explore and expand our experience of the intimacy of walking with God on a personal level. I believe that churches um, have a kind of spiritual life together as a people. There's a kind of uh, a temperature and an atmosphere that can characterize a particular church. And more and more, we want to be a a kind of a community where you come in and your heart is stirred and you experience the grace of God in the together moment. But I also recognize that in a sense, we can't rise above the, um, the spirituality of our members, the people who are part of this church, and your own desire to pursue God for yourself, your own experience of prayer and of intimacy with the Lord and of walking with Him as an individual, is therefore of unbelievable and uh, extraordinary importance, not only for yourself, but for all that God would want to do in and through you, and particularly in how He wants to bless his people, the church. And so I, I, think, I feel um, a great sense of weight in the importance of this series and trust that God is stirring you uh, towards a consistent and devoted prayer life. Let's read then the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now I want to draw your attention this evening to that line that comes about halfway through. Where Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. And I think I'd be accurate in in assuming that of all the lines in the Lord's Prayer, this is the one that we most speedily pass over with a sense of its irrelevance to us. Partly because, you know, if, if it was essential in the time of Jesus for your ordinary folk um, who were living very much hand-to-mouth to uh, depend on God moment by moment for even just that day's provision of nutrition and food, that, it's fair to say, is quite far from our experience, isn't it? Um, you know, bread is cheap. It's mass-produced. There's no, um, there's no it's, pr- it's probably quite rare if any of us have ever been on our knees before God asking for a loaf of bread, right? And then you roll in to uh, this also the reality that I'm speaking to a largely Gen Z or millennial congregation. Um, I know that 50% of you are gluten intolerant. Another portion of you are on ketogenic diets and... Um, uh, or, or just cutting down your, your glycemic index. And it doesn't quite have the ring, does it? Give us our daily quinoa uh, or something like that. And um, there's also a bunch of you from Southeast Asia. And I know, speaking to my father-in-law, he doesn't 
like bread. He doesn't eat bread. He doesn't feel full unless he's eaten rice. Um, doesn't matter what else you put in his mouth. He has to have rice with it. And therefore, it's a reality, isn't it, that very few people pray this in any sincere way, in any meaningful way in their day-to-day lives. And yet, I actually happen to believe that of all the lines in the prayer, I think this might be the most vital in terms of it leading us to the experience of intimacy and friendship with the Lord in a moment-by-moment way. And my hope is to unpack for you just how crucial uh, the sense and the meaning is behind this line. I want to begin by just provoking you to ask this question. Why is it that so often, particularly I'm thinking in the Western secularized context, but why is it that so often you see so much spiritual lethargy and dullness even within churches? Why is it that God's people are often characterized by a prayerlessness and a sleepiness when it comes to the things of God? And it's not for lack of knowledge, is it? We have access to unbelievable levels of resources and teaching and sermons and access to church and all these kinds of things. And therefore, it can't be explained on this term. And I think the only answer that, that really comes back to me as I've mulled on this question year after year is that I think there's something about our situation and our context which does not induce us to become conscious of our need for God. But rather, we're driven towards independence and self-sufficiency. And that is, in many ways, set against and antagonistic to a healthy, flourishing spiritual life. This prayer is, in a sense, going directly against that cultural reality that we find ourselves in. Jesus is teaching us and leading his people in order to inculcate a heart of dependence upon the living God in your day-to-day experience. And I want you to understand right at the outset that Dependence upon God is at the very center and heart of Christian maturity and spirituality. Now, this ought to be obvious to us. The Christian message, many of you, if I asked you, what is it that's unique and distinctive about Christianity over against every other faith that's out there? I think many of you would understand that at the heart of the gospel message, the message which we believe everyone must hear and understand and believe in order to know God, is this, this understanding that you and I can contribute nothing to our salvation, that God's grace, his gift, comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, who's taken our sin upon himself at the cross, who's purchased us by his own blood, so that the person who is saved is not the person who earns and works their way to God, but the person who rather receives the free gift of salvation that is available to us through the death, the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know this, many of you. You understand that the way in to the Christian faith, as Christ said, is, through the, is, in, is in a childlike posture. When he described it as you know, like going through the eye of a needle, there's a sense in which you have to shed everything in your life and be humbled in order to come in. But what we often fail, I think, to understand is that this isn't only the way in to the Christian faith, but it's also the way on. It's the way on into deeper, greater maturity and growth as a believer. 
if there is a key to Christian spirituality, I think it's this. That the person who is growing in their depth of understanding who God is and their, and their experience of intimacy with God is a person who more and more becomes aware of their absolute, complete, and entire dependence upon him. Now this is, I think, counterintuitive because it goes directly in contradiction with our understanding of maturity in other areas of life. Generally, maturity is, is understood to be increasing independence and self-sufficiency. I know this as a father, that my goal is not to be cleaning nappies by the, by the time they reach a certain age. You start off, you're doing a dozen or more a day. Then it's, it gradually tails off until they can manage these things themselves. And that's just characteristic of one dimension of a child's life. In every other dimension of the kid's life, you want to see them go from total dependence upon us towards absolute independence. And eventually, you hope that by some age, I know it's increasingly late these days, let's say 30s, mid-30s, right, you're leaving home. You're, you're fully-fledged, independent, grown-up at that point. You're really adulting. And so this is the goal of, of human growth and development. But Christian maturity and spirituality is almost the exact reverse of that. You thought you were something. You thought you could accomplish something. You thought you were independent of God. You felt that you had, um, you had everything sorted. And then maybe something happened in your life that awakened you to the reality of your need. And so you came to believe in Jesus. But then to keep growing, there is this deepening sense of your need that has to grow within the heart of the Christian. When that is absent, when that isn't happening, you see a believer who's basically coasting or cruising without any connection with the Lord. And one of the chief ways in which that becomes obvious is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is, for me, the fruit of pride in our lives. I think I can manage. And God wants to conquer that. He wants to destroy that. He wants to humble us. He wants to bring us into a position of deepening, deepening humility and a sense of lowness before him so that he can more and more fill us with his grace. That is the heart of this line. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I want to unpack this idea a little bit more for you. And really we're asking this question, well, then how can we cultivate dependence? If dependence and maturity go hand in hand, and if this line is at the heart of, of intimacy with God in your daily experience, how can we cultivate dependence? And I want to approach this from two angles. I want to speak to you negatively, first of all, and highlight some of the reasons why I think this is difficult, and especially for us in our day and age, before we consider more positively what this looks like in the life of the Christian. Let me begin then with the negative. What are the obstacles to the sense of dependence that ought to characterize the heart of the believer? Why is it that we fail to see our need? And I want to give you a few answers to this. I think the first and most obvious is wealth. I don't know how wealthy you feel. I don't know how wealthy you want to be. But just listen to me for a moment on this. The Bible is in no way anti-money. Money in and of itself is almost a nothing. It's an idea. It's, it's almost imaginary. It's just a trust that you can have a certain number and exchange it for a certain 
amount of possessions. In a sense, money is inert and lifeless, and it's no threat to our faith. But, but, the Bible is so sober, particularly the teaching of Jesus, about the great threat that money can pose, not only in people wanting to come to faith, and there seems to be an inverse relationship between the wealth of nations and their interest in spiritual realities, but then also the threat that money poses in the life of the believer. Now, Jesus himself puts his finger on this on numerous occasions. I think Jesus spoke about money something like a quarter of the time in his teaching, which is phenomenal. Most pastors would shy away and feel coy about speaking about money that much of the time. Why does he do that? The answer to me is because he, he didn't in any way underestimate the threat that money can pose to spiritual health and vitality and maturity. Why is that? And the answer, it seems to me, is because on so many levels in our lives, money represents a direct competitor to the claims of what God ought to be and provide for us. So if God says, I want to offer you security and safety, money is another place you can turn for security and safety. If God says, I want to give you pleasures evermore, as it says in Psalm 16, God's desire for us is to experience his goodness so that our lives are flooded with joy. Isn't that the reason why people pursue money? Because they think, well, money is a route to joy and pleasure. And this is true at many levels of our lives. Money is a direct competitor, so that this is why Jesus sets it up as the great idol that lies in competition with, or war with, I should say, the claims of God over your life. In the same chapter in Matthew 6, he said it very explicitly. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And hence it is, in my view, as I just said, that in an age in which wealth just seems to be everywhere, and I'm not assuming that you are personally rich, but there's an assumption, isn't there, that you can get the things you need when you need them. That you have access to unbelievable levels of, of, uh, of comfort that, that were not, simply not available to previous generations because of what we possess. Money is a great obstacle then to knowing our dependence upon God. Related to that, as I just mentioned, is comfort and ease. It's self-evident to me that, that our modern age is, of all periods in history, a time most characterized by comfort and the ease with which we can live our lives. So that you enjoy privileges that even the wealthiest did not experience if we jump back 100, 200, or 1,000 years into, into times past. You know, you, you woke up this morning in a beautifully comfortable bed, right? With Egyptian cotton sheets, or silk if you're particularly fancy. 
And then you rolled out of bed in your flannel pajamas, put on some uh, sheepskin slippers, went downstairs, and uh, you put your porridge in the microwave, right? You think, how, how easy? This is just, it's just unbelievable how easy our lives have become. I may not describe exactly your morning. I don't know how your morning went, but I'm just saying, this is, you can easily relate to this, right? Our lives are surrounded by comfort and ease. And what this does, of course, is it, it smothers any awareness in the day-to-day of how much we need God. When stuff comes easily to us, our basic needs come easily to us. There, let me use the illustration of the trees for a second just to help you understand what I'm speaking of. When trees grow in a context like in cities such as this, where the water table the, the vast resources of water are very close to the surface, the topsoil. Tree roots do not develop very deeply. They go out sideways and they, they stop. There's no, there's no need to grow roots below there. But where trees grow in places where water is, is far below the surface, it's accessible, but it takes, takes almost effort on the part of the tree to get there. Their roots will penetrate hundreds of feet down underground, meters after meters, in order to, to send down roots into those resources of water. And it seems to me that there's something like that going on in the, in the lives of Westerners, I will say, people in a situation like ours, where life, in a sense, the things you need are, are ready for you at the click of a button. It's like Amazon Prime, Netflix, everything is just there for you. And as a result... There's no strain. There's no, there's no need to press. It seems interesting to me that for reasons he never fully articulates, the Lord Jesus Christ actively chose a difficult path in life in that he chose to be homeless, in that he chose to live in dependence upon others, in that he didn't know where his next meal was coming from, And I would venture a guess that part of the reason why Christ chose that course of life in his ministry was in order to greater express his personal dependence upon the Father moment by moment. And yet how foreign that is to the vast majority of our lives and our experience. Comfort and ease. Then I'll add another thing. I think success and opportunity also play a part here. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with you accomplishing and achieving things in life. God created you, the book of Genesis says, for dominion. He made humans to rule. And therefore, the more that we accomplish in life, in a sense, that can be an expression of service to God. And it ought to be an expression of service to God. But human nature is so corrupt that the more we experience success and opportunity in life, which is, by and large, the description of a congregation like ours, given where we are, given what brought you here, and so on, the more we are likely to think, I did this. I got there. There's a passage in the book of Deuteronomy when God's people are still wandering around in tents, living in the wilderness before they move into the conquest of the promised land. 
And they're living their days in total dependence upon God at this point. You know, he's providing food for their bellies, water for them. And these, there's a sense in which they're living in this close intimacy with God. And when your life is like that, you cannot imagine being far from God. But God warns them. And this is how he warns them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says to them, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. He's speaking about some future situation that they'll find themselves in. He says, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. This expression, your heart be lifted up, is a biblical expression that means you become proud. The more you attain, the more you possess, the more you experience of success in life, the more likely it is that you will become proud. Your heart be lifted up. And then he says this, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. It's one of the great conundrums and ironies of Christian living. God wants to be good to you. But the more you experience his goodness, the more likely you are, excuse me, I'm spitting everywhere. You guys are in SeaWorld down here on the front row. The more likely you are to forget him. The more likely you are to feel a diminished sense of need. Let me add a couple more. Safety. We live in the safest age in the history of the world. Now, I know that you and I, we may have faced things in our lives that have felt like existential threats in the moment, and I don't want to in any way diminish the reality of suffering that you may have experienced. But the, re the reality is that as a society and as a culture and even as a church, look, we're surrounded by, we have a welfare system on one side, a health system on the other side. We have insurance. We have insurance for ourselves, for our houses, for all our possessions, for our animals, for goodness sake. And we've lived in a prolonged season of peace. So that war, if war has taken place, it's been so far removed from us that it's not really touched us in any meaningful way, the vast majority of us. And what is the aggregate effect of all of this experience of safety and security upon a people? And it seems to me that it, it leads to the reality that we are never confronted with our very real human vulnerability. And therefore, we're never driven to a point of desperation and need. And the result of all that is that we become spiritually blasé and apathetic. When... The explorers first discovered the island of Mauritius. There was on that island a bird that had no natural predators. And it nested on the ground. And it had no fear. And the explorers brought with them cats, dogs, pigs. And these animals just decimated the population of these birds, just going around from nest to nest, eating their eggs. And then the humans, whenever they felt, I feel a bit hungry today. You know, there was no need to stalk and hunt like you might if you went on a turkey hunt. 
I've never done it, but I've heard that they're quite tricky to shoot, believe it or not. You just walk up to one of these birds and clobber it, and that's dinner. And that bird is the dodo. It's extinct, right? You think that, in a sense, is an image of what happens to people when your life is surrounded by certain levels and layers of security and ease. Now, again, as I said, I recognize that there can be suffering underneath your experience that I don't know about or that I do with some of you. But I'm speaking in the round here. I'm speaking generally of the, the tenor of the age in which we live and the realities that, that so easily smother our consciousness of God, our God consciousness. Let me add one last thing here. The opportunity for escape. Even if... For a brief moment in your day, your week, your month, or your year, there's a flickering of spiritual hunger. Isn't it the case that that is so easily satiated, satisfied, numbed, or even maybe anesthetized by our instinctive retreat into distraction? so that we live in the most distracted age of all. And I think that that is, I, look, I, I believe that that is directly at war with, with our knowledge of God. I think it's a Christian duty to be aware of this as a great trap and a great hindrance to a vital living spirituality. You'll have heard stories of kids it's particularly prevalent, I've heard, in South Korea where there can be such an addiction to gaming that kids can forget to eat, drink, and even sleep. And children have been known, I'm thinking of young teens, been known to die because of their addiction to gaming. You think, isn't that a parable? Isn't that a parable of the modern age that we're all so distracted, so anesthetized that we don't know what it is to feel an appetite for God, never mind to seek him that we might be satisfied by him. Now, I, I don't know what the answer is to all these challenges. I think it can help just to open your eyes and understand that we are living in an unnatural age in that sense. And the way in which that can be a, a great conflict and at war with your you knowing God. But I want to move to the positives and, and explain to you how I believe that Christ would lead us to cultivate dependence upon God. How can we depend upon him individually? I think, and here's the hopeful part, I think this is exactly why he taught us to pray this prayer. The Lord Jesus knows human nature. He knows the heart of man, as it says in John's Gospel. He knows our tendency to want to go it alone and to be independent of God and to cruise through life as though you don't need God. And therefore, at the heart of this prayer that he taught us is this, this humble line, give us this day our daily bread. It seems to me that there is in here an opportunity, friends, to know a vital living connection with God like you may have never experienced before. And I want to just unfold for you what I think Jesus 
intended and meant through this particular line. Let me show you first what dependence is in this way. I think he was teaching us that you have to learn to depend upon God totally, comprehensively, I might say, and completely in every dimension of your life. Now, the reason I say that is because I think it would be wrong to reduce this line down to the mere provision of bread itself, to take it in the very literal sense. I don't think it's less than that. You know, for many people through history, this has been the, the daily momentary concern. Lord, I need to eat. And therefore, to take this prayer on your lips in such a moment is a God-honoring thing. So it's not less than that. But it's not limited by that either. God is a generous Father. He wants to, he wants to give you more than just bread. He wants you to experience His goodness in every dimension of your life. And this prayer, therefore, give us this day our daily bread, is a road into the knowledge of the experience of the goodness of God in every dimension of your existence. Now, what I'm encouraging you to do, therefore, is to understand, to broaden your sense of your need, what the needs that you bring to God. And Jesus knew this just a couple of chapters earlier. In Matthew chapter 4, we, we encounter him at that moment of deep hunger when he's been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness and Satan comes to tempt him. He says, turn these stones into bread. What does Jesus do? He instinctively relies upon the scriptures that he'd grown up reading, quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Jesus was teaching Satan in the sense, or rebutting Satan with that, was the confession that our human existence is more than merely physical and that the the, what we need from the Father is more than just today's nutrients. Many of us could go for days without bread. Some of us for weeks. But you cannot go a moment without, knowing the, without experiencing the goodness of God in some way. You may never feel real hunger, physical hunger. I know this when, you know, my wife's from Malaysia. We, when we traveled to Malaysia a few times over the years, Malaysia is a food-based culture. And we eat sometimes four or five times a day because you have to try this, um, this hawker stall at this roadside, this particular junction to eat their noodles, and then you need to go there to try this particular dish and that dish, and you just indulge and indulge and indulge. And after two or three days of this, I've forgotten what hunger feels like, and the food becomes less pleasurable to me. And in a sense, that's, that's our whole existence, isn't it? We never really experience physical needs in that way, but your humanity is multi-layered and complex. You have needs that are best described by other words, like emotional needs, relational needs. You have needs that are spiritual in nature. And this is why, friends, this is why we need to wake up. You, we can live as we do in a day and an age in which no one needs to starve. And yet, we can still be deeply poor. 
we can still experience relational and emotional and spiritual poverty of a level that is wrecking lives because we are so ignorant of the reality of our humanity that is more than just the physical. So we ask, what is Christ teaching here when he says to teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? I believe it's this. Let me sum it up for you in this line. He is teaching you to bring your deepest desires and appetites to God every day. The Bible is full of examples of men and women doing just this. One of the most moving and touching examples of that is the woman Hannah, married to a man called Elkanah. The two of them go up as was their duty to the temple to pray. And Hannah's barren. She has no children. And the deepest longing of her heart, the the gut-level ache that she feels is not for food. It's not for friends. It's not for a house. It's for a child. And we encounter her in 1 Samuel, in the first chapter of that book, weeping before God at the entrance to the temple, so taken with grief that the priest thinks she's drunk. She's not drunk. She's been fasting in, in an act of desperation and pouring out her heart to God, even to an extent her own husband doesn't understand. It's typical of husbands, isn't it? Not to understand the deepest desires of our wives. And yet here she is, bearing her soul to the living God. This is my longing, Father. And what I'm trying to encourage you, friends, is this. When Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he wants you to be alert and aware of what exactly it is you want. What exactly it is you need. There is nothing worse, is there, than coming to God with plastic, pre-prepared prayers to offer Him, as though that will induce a connection with the living God, rehearsing the things that you think you ought to pray for, instead of being real with Him. When Jesus taught us to pray, give us this daily bread, in other words, He was, teach- he was bringing prayer back down to our most basic appetites and needs, and teaching you, if, if you accomplish nothing else before God in prayer, friend, be honest. Be real. Use real language. Tell Him exactly how you feel. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're frustrated. But whatever that appetite is that you feel that is not addressed, bring it to Him. And it may be the case that God gives you exactly what you're asking for, but it may also be the case that the Father in His tender mercy and love will address that need in some other way. Such is His grace. He knows you better than you know yourself. He wants you to come to Him and bring the entirety of your humanity to Him. So learning to depend on God is bringing our needs to Him in totality, comprehensively, every dimension of our being. You're lonely. Tell the Lord. You're unfulfilled in what you're doing with your life. Tell Him. You may be anxious or joyless or empty or whatever it is. You bring it to Him. You, you explain. You, ex, you express it to Him. And whatever words seem appropriate in the moment, that's what it means. Give us this day our daily bread. Let me show you another thing. 
He's also teaching us to depend on the Lord, our Father, in a way that is constant and active and deliberate. And what I mean here is that I think it's very significant that Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, so that we're not asking for next week or year hence. We're asking for this moment, essentially, God to come and meet us in this particular moment. Now, why is this such an important thing to draw our attention to? For this reason, that we have a tendency to want to cruise, to stockpile and cruise on the grace of God so that you can somehow circumvent the, the, the need to depend on him in a moment-by-moment moment way. And now, here's, here's how this expresses itself. You may have gone through seasons of your life when you, you, you desperately prayed to God for something. You needed a job. You asked for a husband. You wanted, you wanted an opportunity or a child even. And, you know, this, is, this can be the experience of many Christians' lives. They go through these moments where they bring your desperate prayers to God. And God comes through, answers a specific prayer. Now, what happens next? So often what happens next is that that prayer life that was deepening and becoming richer and more, more real suddenly dries up. You got what you wanted. You're not praying anymore. This prayer, give us this day, our daily bread, is an invitation to come back to God in a moment-by-moment -moment dependence. This is partly, I think, at a minimum, underlined by a theological recognition and understanding that God is upholding your life every moment of every day. As Colossians says about Jesus, says, in him all things hold together. It says in Hebrews 1 that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which is to say that there is not a person alive today who isn't in that moment alive other than for the reason that Christ is willing them to be alive. He is willing your next breath. He is willing your heart to beat. He is upholding you in this moment. That is the degree to which we are dependent upon him. But Jesus presses this even more deeply for us as Christians. When he talks about the importance of abiding. Do you remember this passage in John 15 where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, which I take to mean a living connection with Jesus. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here's the crucial line. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this is it, isn't it, friends? Do you act as though that were true? Do you, does your spiritual life bear the marks that you believe in your heart of hearts that apart from him you can do nothing? I think that the Lord is inviting us. Give us this day our daily bread. He's inviting us to Learn the habits of dependence, of what it means to abide in him so that your momentary needs 
are met by the Father, met by His goodness. There's a wonderful example of just exactly what I'm trying to describe for you in the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 16, you remember, as I've mentioned already, the Israelites are wandering around in circles in the wilderness for many years. And before long, they run out of resources. They don't have any way to feed themselves in any sustainable way. And God supernaturally provides for them with this substance called manna, which they, they gather from the desert floor. But there is an, an explicit directive that God gives. He tells them not to gather more than they need for that specific day. And if ever they felt particularly greedy and they decide to stockpile for the next day, what they'd find is that they opened their jar the next day they discover that the whole batch has gone bad. It's rotten. It's inedible. So they were compelled to go out every day. Now, I don't think that this is in any way an, an accident of the story. I believe it's intrinsic to what God was seeking to teach the Israelite about a living spirituality. Why? Because he's showing them that they cannot do without him. And more than that, he's showing them that he is totally dependable. So that when you lean into reliance upon the living God, God wants to come through for you every time and without fail. He wants to be the one that you lean upon. He wants to be the rock that you build your life upon. He wants to be the great anchor of your life, your spiritual life. He wants to be the provider. Let me show you one last thing. It's an invitation to learn to depend upon God joyfully as well. Now, I say this, I think this is one of the prevailing challenges and chastisements that I experience in my own spiritual life in this sense, that there is no greater discredit to the gospel than a Christian who is not marked by joy in their day-to-day -day life. You know this in your physical life, how if you, maybe one or two of you identify with me on this, if I'm hungry, I get angry. My wife, um, she just laughs at me, but it's true. I get short-tempered, I have a short fuse, I get hangry. It's just part of who I am. Lord, forgive me and help me. But in a sense, that's true of many Christians also in their spiritual lives. You're, you're miserable. You're lacking joy. You're lacking fulfillment. You're lacking satisfaction. And the meal that would make you happy is right in front of you. Isn't it the case that when you eat a hearty meal, your soul feels glad? I love to eat. Love it. Feasting is one of God's greatest gifts to us. But part of the reason why God gives us a gift of feasting is to teach us the spiritual need that we have of feasting on His goodness, of knowing His delight, of knowing the pleasures of God, of filling our souls on the grace and goodness of God. And friend, many of you are adept at filling your, your, your faces with food. You know, you know how to cook. You've followed Master Chef. You know where the best restaurants are. You know where to find the best ingredients. And we've become so, we've become so skillful 
at filling our bellies with food. And yet we're complete Philistines when it comes to our understanding of the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. What it means to fill our souls with the goodness of God. Here's how Jesus puts it in John chapter 6. He says, don't work for the food that perishes. He's speaking there about bread. He said, the food that, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He says, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ is making an extraordinary claim there, friend. He's saying that just as you understand physical hunger that will not be satisfied until your stomach is full, he's saying there is a spiritual desire in every one of us that can only be satiated by and satisfied by the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the bread that has come down from heaven. Give us this day our daily bread is therefore an invitation to enter into the experience of the goodness of God every day so that your heart is filled with the joy that only He supplies. A joyful Christian becomes an unstoppable, invulnerable force. A Christian whose soul is filled with the goodness of God cannot suffer the barbs of Satan and cannot be stumbled by the temptations that he offers. You're not drawn into sexual sin. You're not drawn into greed. You're not drawn into covetousness. You're not drawn into ambition and comparison and the need to prove yourself and all the insecurities that go along with that. You become invulnerable to these things because your heart is full. And just like when you eat a full meal and you can't imagine putting another morsel of food into your mouth ever again in your life, that's the Christian life. That's what the Christian life can be. Your soul is full with Christ. What else could satisfy when he is the bread of life.